0: My name is Lou Moore. I'm the president of the Washington Research Council, and I'm here today with Samuel Padia, who is the Senior Policy Director for uh, Pharma in Washington, D.C., uh, the uh, Pharmaceutical Drug Industry Trade Association. So, Samuel, welcome to uh, Policy Today. Hi, Lou. Thanks for having me. So, uh, before we get into some of the issues of the day, tell us a little bit about your background and what your role is at Pharma, and then also tell us a little bit about Pharma. I mean, we hear things, but but, but tell us a little bit about the organization, too, if you would. Sure.
1: Um, pharma is uh, it stands, an acronym. It's P-H-R-M-A. It stands for the Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers of America. Uh, we are a trade organization who represents the branded pharmaceutical manufacturers that operate in the United States. These are like large companies. It's like Pfizer, um, Glasgow, Klein, Eli Lilly, Bayer, et cetera. There's a, there's a whole bunch of them. But we represent them, and, and our organization is divided into a number of different departments. I work in the policy and research department. Um, so we do policy research for uh, on, on behalf of I, – I focus on cost, of uh, drug spending, overall healthcare spending, pharmaceutical drug spending, and cost price related issues. And also the supply chain of how how, uh, the financial flow works through the distribution system for prescription medicines in the United States. Sure. Um, So, and then there's, we also, our organization also does advocacy on behalf of of the biopharmaceutical industry, for the branded manufacturers of the biopharmaceutical industry. There's a separate organization that does things for generic manufacturers. Okay. And we we represent Sure. A um, little bit about my background. I, I did my master's degree in health finance and management at the Johns Hopkins School of Public Health. Long, long time ago. Um, Over the last like 19 or so years. I've held a number of different roles uh, in different different organizations, uh, covering the. I worked at Cigna Healthcare and Coventry Healthcare of Delaware on the payer side, or the insurance side, in finance and medical economics roles. Um, I also was at AstraZeneca Pharmaceuticals in pricing and contracting strategy for a number of years um, on the pharmaceutical side, so I actually did price drugs and assisted with the contracting of those drugs with insurers, um, and in between, I've held uh, several uh, consulting gigs uh, covering, you know, where clients were pharmaceutical companies or health plans, and um, and my last job before coming to pharma was working at Evergreen Health Co-op, which is one of the um, the Health, Health Evergreen Health Cooperative, it's one of the co-ops that were founded through the Affordable Care Act. Um, unfortunately, there were like 22 of them, I think, when we started, and there aren't that many left now, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. But Evergreen is still there. I was the vice president of medical economics. It's a terrific experience and a terrific organization. And then I came here at a good opportunity, and I've been at Pharma for the last year and a half.
0: Okay, very well. Um, so... My first question for you is, what's involved to, to put a drug on the market, to have a drug be approved? I mean, what, what does that take? What's involved with that?
1: It's a very long process. I mean, there's um, a lot of medicines. I right? say you have a, a medicine that you have a concept for that you would like to, to go forward with. Um, there's, there's a misconception a lot of times that you hear in the, in the media that the National Institutes of Health of the federal government pays for Research into a drug, research and development of a drug. What the what the federal government pays for is they invest in basic science, which is really important. I mean, it's, it's they, but they do it not just for prescription drugs. They they do it for agricultural products for seed. They do it for. I mean, there's a lot of technology that um, that came out of the space program from NASA that then went into like microwave technology, which went into home appliances. There's propulsion systems that came out of of, of NASA and even our military that went into that are being used by large airlines, for example. Mm-hmm. And, but one of the things that they also they invest in is like for dental care, they invest in basic science research for dental care, but they also invest in for prescription medicines. Um, it does not, it represents a modest portion of the overall cost of developing a product, but the federal government does not develop a new medicine. They invest in basic science. So we work in collaboration with the government, we work in collaboration with research universities, and then our scientists take that basic science, and then we work on developing a actual uh, medicine. It's a lengthy process. There's a lot of products that go in in uh, initial preclinical testing that is not not clinical trials yet. This is just like before clinical trials even begin, and they fail right there. Right? Mm-hmm. Once a product begins clinical trials, there's three phases. There's phase one, phase two, and phase three. Of clinical trials which can typically take up on average about 10 years to get through wow. and, um, and and only about 12% of the products that make it that begin clinical trials actually result in a product that's launched sure. mean it's the, the,
0: yeah sorry. Uh, no 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 I'm sorry but uh, so that that leads me to my next question uh, uh, as related to it. I mean, how much does this process cost? And then if a lot of them don't get to the end of the line, how much money is going out the door uh, with, with no uh, with no recovery of that investment? I, I know they're not all the same, but j- just give us a feel for, for what we're talking about here as far as the cost. Well,
1: Tufts, uh, Tufts University in Boston did a study on this. They, they've been tracking this for quite a number of years. And their latest number that they put on it is when you, when you factor in the costs of the medicines that don't make it these are the medicines that don't make it once clinical trials begins right and they said that for every drug that does make it it the cost is approximately 2.6 billion dollars yes. so that's 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 factoring in the the cost that's associated with the drugs who also fail mm-hmm. but, the, but you know these these failures though people say oh the drug failed but there's a tremendous amount of learning that takes place there so when when scientists work to develop a medicine and it just for whatever reason, is not successful, does not turn into a medicine that launches in the market, they still learn a lot from those failures. And that scientific learning contributes to the next time they go out and try, you know? And so, for example, like for, for Alzheimer's disease, there have been 123 unsuccessful attempts to bring a treatment to the market for Alzheimer's disease. Four treatments have made it to the market, but they're treating symptoms. They're not actually even finding a cure you see this, this over and over uh, trial and error trial and error over time but every time they failed they learned something
0: else you know and so eventually mm-hmm. hopefully there will be a cure for a, you know to determine a terrible disease such as alzheimer's sure sure so um and that leads me to the to the question of drug costs uh, just the cost of of drugs that are on the market now and you're you're well aware we've talked about this There uh, was a court case out here in Washington, and there's been a lot of controversy across the country about the price of hepatitis c drugs the new ones that are on the market as well as others uh, uh like them so why i mean why would a drug cost as hillary clinton said during the campaign a hundred thousand dollars a pill and I, I realize that might not have been an accurate statement in itself but but why would some of these drugs come out and be so terribly expensive well there's
1: i think there's a bit of um, misunderstanding in, in the public about when you talk about drug prices. So there's a list price. So there's a price that the manufacturer sets for a product, right, when when a product is launched. I used to do pricing, so this is something I, I, I know quite well. And there's a number of factors that go into determining, you know, where you set your initial list price. And one of, the fact, one of the factors, it's not the only factor, but one of the factors that goes into that is how much is the cost for treating a disease absent the drug? So... So what is, so if you're if you're a, menu, a prescription drug manufacturer, and say I'm just making up, let's say we use this um, example of $100,000 that Hillary Clinton cited. Say you want to launch a product, a drug, at $100,000. But the cost of medically treating that disease at the same level of the drug is, say, $70,000. But you're not offering any value to the insurer. The insurer is going to come to you and say, I'm sorry, we're not going to pay that. And so your product will get no formulary access and so therefore you will not be able to sell your product on the, on the market effectively. And They do have quite a lot of, quite a lot of power in that regard. So, so the manufacturer doesn't typically go there. Now you look at the example of those hepatitis C products. So Harvoni and Sovaldi were the first two that launched both by the same manufacturer. The average cost between those two at a list price level was about $90,000 for a course of treatment, not, not per pill, but a course of treatment. But this is a disease. Keep one thing in mind about hepatitis C. This is a disease that is, was killing five times as many people as HIV-AIDS did at the height of the AIDS epidemic. It's, also, it's, a, it's a leading cause of liver transplants in the United States. And the, these treatments that were developed are cures. They're not treating symptoms. And their cure rates are north of 90%. Over 90% cure rates for, for, for people who have this disease. So if you end up having a liver transplant, that cost is about half a million dollars. If you're talking about, um, so so before these cures came on the market, people acted as though there was no cost to treating people with hepatitis C. That's not true. Um, The the main treatment for hepatitis C prior to these cures coming on the market was a product called Pegylated Interferon. And Milliman & Associates, which is a a big actuarial firm, pegged the average cost of of treating people with Pegylated Interferon at about $40,000 per year. That's not a cure, that's just year after year after year trading them. But a lot of people didn't even take it because the side effects were so horrible for patients and debilitating for patients that they could not tolerate the pegylated interferon, so they discontinued it. Now Medicaid plans got it, got it for less than, than that 40,000 but that was like the average cost across the overall market, mm-hmm. That's according to, according to Sure. So there's a lot of factors that come in. So you start off with that list price, but then we have a system in this country where, you, where uh, manufacturers rebate back to insurers to lower that price. So within one year of these two products launching for hepatitis C, um, there was a third product that launched um, called by Carapac, by a company called AbbVie. That increased comp- brand versus brand competition in the market, and the rebates have now risen as a result of that. This is us within two years. We're talking about within within one year the competition came in, increasing rebates, but now within two years, you're looking at rebates between forty and sixty five percent off of that price. So the so no one is so insurers are not paying. Ninety thousand dollars for a course of treatment. They're paying, you know, roughly around fifty thousand dollars in that in that range, or a little bit less than fifty thousand dollars in that range for that course of treatment. That's still a lot of money, but that's but if you take into account what the cost of treatment was before this this uh, lease chairs came on the market, it's it's money that I we would probably argue is well spent.
0: Sure, sure. Well, you mentioned Medicaid, and uh, and you're well aware, because I, I I discussed it with you at the time, but we did a report recently about the Health Care Authority in Washington State, which administers Medicaid, and about uh, some of the cost drivers connected to that program. And, and with uh, the Medicaid, great Medicaid expansion that's gone on all over the country, we have over 600,000 new folks in Washington State alone on this program. There's 2 million Washingtonians on Medicaid at this point. So this is becoming a very serious situation to look at from every angle in in terms of budget and expenditures. So uh, I guess my question is, how how does the pharmaceutical industry interact with Medicaid? You, You mentioned rebating just briefly, but if you could just explain that in a little bit more detail.
1: Sure, I'd be happy to, oh, before I get into Medicaid, I just wanna say one more thing about the hepatitis C cure sure. that came out. They have minimal, very minimal to no side effects, or a very, very low amount of side effects as compared to the previous treatments. So, you know, three month course of therapy and you're cured of the disease with low side effects. Anyway, but we'll get on to Medicaid. Sure. So the Medicaid programs, the way our companies interact with them is that the, the way the Medicaid is administered in this country, there's a number of, a series of what they are statutory, which are required rebates. And there's other price protections that are already in place in state Medicaid plans. So whenever a product launches um, in in this country, initially there's there's a the list price that they that they set, which is the, the, when, when the when a manufacturer launches a product, they set a list price. There's another price called the average manufacturer's price, which is just a little bit lower than that. It's not. I don't want to get into too much of the details. Because people might not want to get it not want not want to know this much about it, but. The average manufacturer's price is like um is, is set at a little bit lower than the list price. It's a calculated number um representing the sales between the manufacturer and wholesaler, what the wholesaler actually gets up paying for the drugs. So so the way the you formula is calculated it's a little bit lower than the list price. Twenty three point one percent is taken off of that number as an initial discount that you have to give to any Medicaid plan in the country.
0: That's tw- that's twenty three percent, did you say? 23%? 23,
1: yeah, 23.1% 23. Uh-huh. below the average manufacturer's price, which is a price that's a little bit lower than the list price that the, that the manufacturer set for the drug. Okay. And then on, to, then on top of that, Medicaid gets the best price, what they call the best price in the market, which means in the commercial markets, so if you're in, if you're insured by like now United, if you have commercial health insurance, the cheapest per unit price that any customer in the country can get, even for just one pill, Sets the new best price. So, they, so if I have a 23% discount for Medicaid, and, I, and I'm a manufacturer, and I sell one pill for, say, a 30% discount to one commercial customer, that means every Medicaid plan in the United States gets that pill, gets that drug, for a 30% discount, the same price. So they, they get the best price, guaranteed best price in the overall marketplace. On top of that, there's also an inflation protection guarantee, which is called a CPI, CPI penalty, which is, um, CPI, so your consumer price index, measure of inflation. It's set, it's benchmarked against a CPI urban number, which is measure of inflation in the U.S., which has been very low in number in the recent years. It's been like 2% or so. So if a company takes a price increase above what CPI urban is, um, there's a more complicated formula associated with it, but, but essentially they have to rebate back the difference. So if, if inflation is set at 2% and you take a 5% price increase, the differing the 3% difference, the 5 minus the 2, the 3% above the CPI level, has to be rebated back to Medicaid. So so the, the, any price increases a manufacturer would take essentially does not impact Medicaid. Um, only anything above the level of inflation does not impact Medicaid, and it was true for brands, and up until very recently, it was not true for generics. But now they've—the last budget deal, the deal was last year—they've included generics in that uh, mix as well. So when you factor all these things together, in federal fiscal year 2015, brand companies um, paid Washington State about 365. Mil- well, they paid. $365 million in brand rebates uh, for Medicaid recipients in Washington State in federal fiscal year 2015, according to an analysis that I've received of uh, what we call CMS64 data, which is data that was supplied by Washington State Medicaid to the federal government, to CMS. Mm-hmm. Now, that, that three hundred and sixty approximately $365 million accounted for 55% of the total Prescription drug expenditures of Medicaid ex- Medicaid recipients in Washington State in fiscal federal fiscal year 2015. So, of that 365 million, the way that the way that it works is the federal government puts up a certain amount of money for the state Medicaid programs, uh, and the state puts up a certain amount of money. Now, that that's called that that proportion. And for Washington State, the federal government puts up half the money for the state Medicaid program, and the state puts up the other half. So, when when, when drug manufacturers pay rebates. The rebates are divided up between the state and the federal government using that percentage, sure. the 50-50 split. So we, the manufacturers, paid three hundred sixty-five million, and um, about half of it went to the state, and the other half went to the, back to the federal government.
0: Okay, so so in essence, just just very roughly, what percentage discount is our Medicaid program getting overall? And I realize this is drug by drug, but but just roughly,
1: it's about fifty-five okay. percent.
0: brands. Okay. Yeah. The the
1: rebates account account for 55% of the total Medicaid spending
0: in the state. Okay. Well, I think it's important to know that. Sorry.
1: Medicaid prescription drug spending. Sorry. Sure. The rebates, brand rebates account for about 55% of total Medicaid
0: prescription drug spending in Washington State in Mm -hmm. federal fiscal year 2015. Okay. All right.
1: At least too many numbers? Are these too many numbers? Or is it, is it well,
0: well, well, I'm not supposed to say yes to that, well I'm a researcher, but anyway. <laughs> no, that's fine. All right. That's, right. Fine. But, that's uh, fine. uh so, uh So another question I have, then, it, it, as the as uh, government budgets are increasingly central to, to financing health care delivery, I mean, in other words, we've got 2 million people on Medicaid, uh, we have a lot of folks on Medicare. Um And the fact that it's pretty obvious that that we're moving into an era where there's going to be more drug therapies and and perhaps fewer surgeries or other invasive uh, techniques uh, as far as bringing people back to health. Um, and, and the fact that, that some of these new therapies that are uh, like this hepatitis C, I mean, unbelievable. It's a miracle. Three months, somebody can be cured or something that wasn't curable uh, very long ago, but it's very expensive. So as these new therapies come on the market... Uh, you know, we we had several uh, Medicaid directors around the country complaining about this Hep C drug because it's a sudden bulge, uh, as they describe it, in in their budgets because this drugs come out and, and they you know they didn't predict it and it costs a lot of money, uh, for the therapy, so so how. Uh, do you have any suggestions or any thoughts about how the government can deal with this over time? Because I think this is going to be a cycle. There'll be an, uh, another new drug come out for, for some other uh, health issue, and it will be something miraculous, and, and people will want to have it. And courts will tell the government they have to provide it. And uh, but but it could be distortive uh, to the budget uh, of that. Uh, state or other entity, even if later on the drug costs less. But uh, uh, do you follow what I'm saying? I mean, I think we're starting a cycle I, I here. Yeah. So, so, well, so, I what's mean, your thinking on that?
1: Sure. I mean, if you go back to the height of the AIDS epidemic, that's a lot of times people are saying the same thing. Think like, you know this is going to bust, uh, bust budgets for for private payers and for government. And over time, we figured it out, found a way to get it proper competition in the marketplace. Kept prices are under control and now you don't hear so much about um you know what, what the cost of treating AIDS patients are in, in the united states and they are living much much longer um cancer the same in many ways the same the same thing you know the cancer death rates have dropped dramatically they've been improving so, when, so when, you t- when you have these new medicines that are coming on i think one of the things that ends up happening though is that folks look at the cost of the medicine but they don't look at the cost of the offsets to other types of medical care that are not no longer necessary, has not being needed. So if you have a medicine that reduces the number of hospitalizations, or if you reduces the number of emergency room visits you have to have, you have to also think about, you know, what were you paying to treat these folks before you ended up having the new medicine? So yes, the people look at the cost of the hepatitis C medicine, but they're not counting the cost of the liver transplant the person would have potentially had to have. Well, actually, this way, actually, I did a study with, uh, I did a study on this. They said, you know, the number of liver transplants don't come down. They, they're, they're not going to come down because of these new cures. And I was like, well, why not? Because, well, because the people who need liver, the number of people who need liver transplants far exceeds the number of livers that are available for transplant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, so, but I'm like, okay, so then say you're one of these poor souls who need a liver transplant because you have hepatitis C, and this is the number one cause of liver transplants in the country, something that costs half a million dollars, but there's no liver for you. There's just no donor available. Mm-hmm. You're going to pass away, and you're going to pass away with a lot of pain, and you're going to be in the hospital, and it's going to cost be extraordinarily costly. So if you reduce the number of people who require the transplants, you've alleviated a tremendous amount of human suffering. So that was one of the things we. I would ask folks to think about: what are the other costs associated with treating patients, other than the drug costs, that are being offset? But if you look at the drug costs, one of the things we are asking the FDA to do is to have a little more predictability in the overall system. Um, like I said, when I worked in pricing, we would want to talk to insurers about a new product that we would we see we would see launching. Okay, but the FDA has a rule saying that you cannot talk to an insurer about. About a particular for a contracting for you know how much you're going to charge for that particular product until the product has been approved. Right. Mm-hmm. So until you, so you got an FDA approval, and companies once they get FDA approval want to launch as quickly as possible thereafter. So there isn't time. So they launch their product. The product is initially priced, and then it goes to the, the insurer. They have the conversations with the insurer to see where um, where it's going to fall on their formulary. It's they call it a a pharmacy and therapeutics committee within the within the insurer who will review the product, review the safety, efficacy, and cost of the product, and determine where they want to place it on their formulary. It's in everybody's interest for those conversations to happen earlier, right? To have be able to talk to discussions. That we call this we call it horizon scanning, but it's it's a it's a way to be able to for a manufacturer to communicate with an insurer and say, uh, look, we have this product. We're going to probably launch it around this time, we don't know the exact date, but we're going to launch it around this time and it it's coming, um, and this is roughly how much it's going to, we, we envision it's going to be costing, so that the insurer can plan and budget for it appropriately. Um, that, is, that is one way that we could potentially do this. Another thing that can be done is more innovative contract, but that, that requires, to be able to have those conversations, requires a regulatory change with the FDA to facilitate those conversations for taking, for taking, so they can take place earlier. Mm-hmm. Another thing is that there's these very innovative new contracting mechanisms that are being discussed now, which is basically like you, the insurer only pays for the medicine if the medicine works. If the medicine doesn't work, then they don't have to pay for the medicine. The manufacturer will fund the amount of money. So that's, that's another approach. But again, there are regulatory barriers to that because our regulatory system was set up before such contracting uh, modalities were even being discussed. So there's and I can get into there's quite a few of them to get more technical. But there are but these are discussions we are also having with the FDA to say, look, if you're going to be doing if President Trump is talking about doing a number of regulatory um, revisions or if he's going to want to take a look at some of these things, how about how about doing some regulatory changes which facilitates those types of contracts without really uh, damaging the company or putting the company at high risk? High financial risk initially of of uh, if, of trying, wanting to take part in, in such contracting measures, you know. So, I'll give you one example: is that Medicaid Best Price I was talking about before. So, say you say you have a drug that you try with a with a particular patient, and say the patient just doesn't take it, or say there's something with their physiology for which the patient for the drug doesn't work. Say so you have high confidence in the medicine, but that happens, and the drug doesn't work. Okay, the drug didn't work, so you have to refund the cost of the drug. That's one potential way that these that this type of uh, contracts could be structured. So the drug is free. Well, if the drug is free, the charge is zero dollars for it. That sets the med- Medicaid best price at zero dollars. So that means that that manufacturer has to give that drug away for free to every single Medicaid plan. Yeah, I, yeah
0: Medicaid. I don't think that's going to work. So yeah, yeah, they definitely so have to make an work. adjustment there. Right. But 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 let me ask you a question. You know, we talked about the expense of R and D. Uh, it just is one example of of costs that are incurred to produce these drugs. I mean, these are for profit businesses that that, that, that they need to make money. They need to hit a certain number uh, with each one of these drugs to do what they feel that they need to do for their business overall. And and if they can't charge when it doesn't work, does that mean that they'll charge more if it does work? Or, I mean, what's going to happen with that? Well, those
1: those would be, those would be, um, Contract negotiations between the insurer and the uh, manufacturer.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, there's, there's got to. I think uh, an equitable agreement it has got to be an upside and a downside risk for both, both parties. Sure, that but makes these, sense. But these, 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 agreements are still um, relatively early in their, in their development. There's, there are, they do exist out in the marketplace, but there aren't that many of them, and they aren't that many of them largely because of regulatory issues that that are, are impeding their implementation. So, sure. if we were to address some of the equity issues, maybe create a little bit of create some safe harbors to say, listen, we want you to experiment with these types of contracting um, measures. If the government were to, you know, part, that that'd be a very constructive way to partner with industry to try to find a way to take medicines and make them more widely available and lowering the cost to insurers and to and to the public at large. Um, that's like that's one example. That that is one way that
0: that it could it could potentially work a lot better uh, going forward. Sure. You mentioned this a moment ago, uh, the question of hospitalization costs, and in our research, uh, you know, hospitalization is over half the cost of our Medicaid program when somebody goes in the hospital. Uh, Has there been any studies done, or do you have any thoughts on what kind of cost reduction, uh, is there at least the potential for it uh, with these new drugs in terms of what uh, providers have to pay in hospitalization?
1: Yeah, I wish I did. I, I, would, I would be touting it from the rooftops. Um, mm-hmm. So a lot of times we're trying to find a causal relationship between lower hospital costs, um, I was sp- I was specifically focusing on oncology costs or the cost of treating cancer. That's one area that I was doing research into. Um, we saw some studies saying that uh, overall oncology spending is relatively flat, you know, d- despite prevalence of I mean, more people having being diagnosed and being treated with can- for cancer, with mean, overall treatment costs being relatively flat. I don't know. That we, that, that we have not been able to corroborate that study. One study that, that I saw on that on that front. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're trying to get some more data on that. But overall cost of hospitalization um, per hospitalization has actually been declining. Not not overall hospital spending, but for 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 oncology care, the inpatient cost, I should say, has been declining. Uh, for just for cancer care and that's but we don't know we don't it's, it's hard to tell why I, I can't prove without a shadow of a doubt that this is due to the new treatments that are coming onto the onto the market mm-hmm. what's happening is that this site of care is shifting it's uh if so say say you've got a, a med- new oncology medicine or it's a lot less toxic than the old medicines that were it does not cause side effects the way old older medicines did right so now you're treating the patient. You don't have to treat them in an inpatient setting in the hospital. Maybe you can treat them in an outpatient setting. Sure. Maybe you can treat them in a freestanding clinic or in a physician office. And so, if you do that, the cost of treating patients in those sites of care are much less than treating them in an hospital inpatient hospital setting.
0: Absolutely. So, yeah.
1: To the to the degree that the new drugs are or newer medicines that are coming in the market are more tolerable, just like these hep C products are have low side effects. If if you, they have fewer side effects. Can treat them in a lower cost setting. So anecdotally or just logically, it would seem as though that would contribute to the lowering of healthcare spending. But I do not have specific data that shows a direct causal link
0: to it. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it certainly does. Uh, it certainly does make sense that that would be the case. So uh, we're starting a new session of our state legislature out here, which is always a fun, fun time for us. Uh, and there is at least one bill that's been introduced. Uh, Wanting more transparency on the part of the drug companies in terms of what they're charging uh, our Medicaid uh, program in the state. So, can you tell us a little bit about the background of that issue, and also your thoughts on that type of reform?
1: Yeah, I I have to do more research on the specific type of transparency that they are asking for, Mm -hmm. because that there's really not there's not one um, there's not like one size fits all with regard to. Uh, these, these bills, there's actually quite a few states who, are, who have been talking about such measures. Um, one way, one type of transparency that, that some states have been looking into is what they call input cost transparency, which is like, okay, uh, Mr. Manufacturer, how much did you spend for research and development? How much are you spending on marketing? How much are you spending on salaries for your employees and the buildings that you have? And, or, you know, whatever all your other costs are and then we'll add in what we feel is to be a reasonable profit and that's the price of your drug. Well, the problem with that a lot of times is, is that, like I said, I used to do pricing, is that the way the drugs are priced is not what you call a cost plus model. You're not just taking all your costs and adding a little thing on top. What you're trying to do is, because in that sense, if, if you did that, okay, say it takes like, you know, average of 10 years and maybe $2.6 billion to bring a drug to market. Well, say I'm really bad at drug development. I'm a company, I'm just not very efficient takes me like 12 years and it costs me like $4 billion to bring a drug to market. Does that mean I get to charge more for my drug? According to that logic, you would say yes. Mm -hmm. In reality, you would say no. If you're not very efficient, you don't have the right to charge more for for your medicine.
0: Isn't there an issue too that it, uh, that that some of the lack of transparency are laws in place now th- to keep uh, drug companies from colluding with each other? In other words, if things are all transparent, then the different companies will know more of what the other companies are doing out in the market. I think, I
1: think if you end up. There's there's been a, a Congressional Budget Office report actually says that that um, that a lot of additional. It seems counterintuitive, but it's it's sort of true. It's like it is true. It's like if you. If you know what the other person is going to bid, you won't bid as low. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like, I don't know, I'm a, I, like, I love that show Law and Order. It comes on TV. I'm addicted to it. But <laughs> it's like so the, detectives, the detectives, you know, arrest two people. And they put them in two different rooms, All right. It's like the, in social science, like prisoner's dilemma. And they say, they go to the person A, Is like, you know, your buddy over there is telling me everything that you guys did. So your guys mm-hmm. are both guilty. Then you're going to go to jail. The first one who offers me the truth, who tells me the truth, is the one who's going to get the deal from me. So you don't know what the other guy is saying. So imagine if you had like two comps, so, so the insurer is talking to two different uh, pharmaceutical companies, manufacturers, who have competing products. So if you go to them, and if one person knows what the other one is going to bid, well, and they're not. Why would they bid lower? They would, they would bid, or they would, they wouldn't bid as low potentially because they know what the competition is going to say. Mm-hmm. If you can buy something for three thousand dollars, why would you offer to pay four thousand dollars for it? Sure. Is that input cost transparency? I talked about other price of type of transparency. They said it's like the overall price transparency that, that we're just discussing now. Um, other ones is there other other states are saying to take all their list prices and publish them and show the list price increases, but that's not particularly accurate either because list prices is not what the insurance company actually pays. We have a system of Manufacturer sets a list price, and then they pay a rebate to the to the manufacturer to the to the insurer, and you get down to what we call a net price, which is after the rebate. And that's why they they, they have kept, we have kept those the uh, net prices more confidential, is so that's a private contract negotiation between the manufacturer and the insurer.
0: Sure, sure.
1: And so, so you want to so you, so I can understand the the need for people to say, look, I want to know how this process works a little bit better. And we were trying to work on that um, way, along the way, to do to say what, what, how much can we disclose that would be responsible to, to, for the public to see, at the same time that would not hurt private contract negotiations that are being taken place, which has resulted in overall prescription drug spending when you when you back out all the rebates, to be um, a relatively small share of what we small and stable share of what we pay for overall
0: health care in the United States. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Um, so you mentioned at the beginning of the show that one of your areas of expertise was the supply chain connected to uh, the distribution of pharmaceutical drugs, and uh, I understand there's a new study out that, that it looks at supply chains uh, as well as all the other factors involved with uh, putting drugs uh, out in, out on the market and, and to the public. And uh, you know, the question is: is when money is spent on prescription drugs, who actually gets that money?
1: Yeah, that, that was a, a project I worked on with a, with a company called the Berkeley Research Group. Um, I, I talked to them about that. And so they, they put out a study on, on this front. They looked at all drug spending in the United States. So all the drugs that – so the medicines that were um, dispensed through retail pharmacies, the medicines that were dispensed in hospitals and through physician offices. Um, so everything, the entire full gamut, all right? And so we're talking about how much, uh, so all the specialty medicines, all of the cancer medicines, all branded medicines, all generic medicines, and the cost of, of people in the, what we call the supply chain. And the supply chain would be defined as uh, organizations such as wholesalers, pharmacies, uh, pharmacy benefit managers or PBMs, and then also markups taken on medicines by hospitals and physicians. But they also they 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 would sell medicines for more than what they um, acquired them for. So when you look at the entire gamut of how money flows through the system, you start off with the list price of the medicine that that the manufacturer is setting, and everybody gets a piece of that. They all have their margins. They are running their particular businesses. So they all buy the product for less than what they sell it for, and there's a markup at every single step along the way. So when you when you examine that that amount of, of, of money as it flows through the system. What we, just, what we found through this study is that even after you take out all of the rebates and the discounts paid by, the, by manufacturers to government and private insurers, after you take all those rebates out, branded manufacturers are retaining less than half of what's left over.
0: Interesting. Right? so That is so quite branded interesting.
1: Manufacturers yeah, so, they, so they're not keeping – that's after all the rebates have been paid out to all, the, um, all, of the, all of those entities. And the amount that is being retained by the branded manufacturers is equivalent to 7% of the total amount of money that the United States spent on healthcare care in 2015. So there's a – generic manufacturers keep a portion, and those supply chain entities keep a portion. Um, as the other entities that are in that overall mix. And it's a, the report is a public report. It's on the Berkeley Research Group website. Um, and, uh, you know, I would encourage people to read it. The way it was put out was to try to make it, um, to try to make it so that it, uh, the lay audience would be able to read and understand it. Not that long. Um, a lot of detail, a lot of a lot of work that went into it, but we tried to make it so that people would be able, to, who, who would read it and would take it to heart and understand it. And so it's not, it's not, doesn't point fingers at anybody. It all it simply says is people should know that there's an entire vast system of how money, how how prescription medicines are distributed in the country, and and get a sense for where does that money actually go. Sure. And the thing of and the thing about this is what it's showing is that the rebates that manufacturers are paying are increasing. So the amount of the total pie that the manufacturers, brand and generic manufacturers, are retaining, is declining. But the share that the supply chain, or if you want to call the the middlemen in this overall system, the share that they are retaining, is increasing. So,
0: um, oh, interesting. It's something to think about. It's something to think about. It's something, and I think it's,
1: it's it should be part of the discussion, so that we could have an informed discussion. I heard um, Senator uh, Sanders on, on the Bill Marshall, it's the show I like, but I was watching T V and I flipped there and he said he was talking about insulin products. And he was like, say, look at these insulin prices. The prices are going really high. The list prices were going were being raised. But if you look at the, the financials of the companies who make those products, their net revenues are relatively flat. So it's like how is that possible? And that's been publicly reported. So it's like how is that possible? So he was like saying those are greedy manufacturers. But I'm like, no, Senator, if the net revenues are flat after rebates and everything have been paid, then the difference between the the raise, high, the, the increasing of the list price and that net price is not going to the manufacturer.
0: Mm-hmm. It's going
1: to the supply chain and it's going to the health plans. It's being paid back in rebates. It doesn't mean that they're, they're getting like a windfall, but it just means that that money is not going back to the branded manufacturers. So it's not an example of... A greedy manufacturer, and sure. That's, but, but that's a that's a more of a policy discussion, not not a political one. Mm-hmm. So that's just, that's just understanding just how the money is going through this overall.
0: System. Yeah, well, it's definitely germane to this whole conversation about uh, budget drivers and drug costs, and um, yeah, I, I, it, it's obvious that that should be in the equation when we look at everything uh, everything concerned. So uh, I guess my last question is. Is there anything else you want to share with our listeners while I have you? really appreciated your time today.
1: So, no, I mean, I think we, we covered quite a bit of ground. I just wanted to, I want to just, you know, for your, for your listeners and your readers here, I want to just give them a little bit more context about some of the benefits that, that prescription uh, prescription medic, medicines do provide. I mean, there's a there's a built-in life cycle within prescription drugs, prescription medicine spending in this country. I mean, you've got products that come on, you know, products that launch are branded agents um, typically within two years of a product launching, there's another branded competitor within the same therapeutic class, um, which competes against that brand product, which results in increased rebates and therefore lowering of the you know lowering of the cost of that particular medicine. And then when the product goes off patent, you're seeing a dramatic drop in overall uh, overall pricing. So when people talk about like the patent clip that they talked about from a few years ago. Um, You know, they said that there's a fifth effect that between 2011 and 2015, $101 billion of product sales went off patent. They lost exclusivity and generics came on the market, which helped to lower Mm -hmm. overall prescription drug spending. But what people don't talk about as much is that that cliff never really ends because every year there's new products coming on, there's other products going off. And that between 2016 and 2020, an additional $93 billion of product sales of branded medicines will be going off patent. So there'll be generics coming on for those products. And this doesn't even take into account um, by similar products, which could well be entering our market in the, next, in the next few years to a greater extent, which will further lower the cost of uh, prescription medicine spending in, in the country, or at least will temper the cost of prescription medicine spending. Mm-hmm. So when people are concerned that, you know, are we gonna have like, uh, you know, many, many spikes of, of drug spending within the country, I, we don't think that's going to happen, and neither does the federal government by chance. I mean, CMS, which is the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, they have like an army of actuaries who project out prescription medicine spending as well as overall health care spending. They don't just do it for drugs. They do it for like all sectors of health care. And, they're, and they, are, they have reported consistently in their projections that they expect prescription medicine spending to be relatively the same share as it is today all the way for the next decade, through the next decade,
0: sure. through the overall pot Boy, that, that is. That, 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 I, that, I didn't mean me interrupt you, Sambo. But that is not uh, what people out there are saying. If you know what I mean, I mean just the, the general conversation you hear.
1: Right, because they're taking a small example and they're trying to extrapolate a small subset and then extrapolate it out and try to make it into a broader narrative. But it, that, when you do that, you're misleading the public. There is a so prescription medicines for retail drugs, the drugs that are that are dispensed through retail pharmacies. CMS puts out an annual report on this, and they represent about 10% of overall health care spending. Now, that's retail pharmacies plus distribution costs, so the supply chain costs we're talking about here. So when you factor in the costs of, of drugs that are spent through hospitals, it adds about another 4% onto that on that total. So it's about 14% of overall healthcare care spending is in prescription drugs across all payer types right mm-hmm. now if you take subsets of that like little small segments of that and slice it to try to make an argument you'll get a different number but when you look at all spending across all payers what our country pays that's about how much it is and for as far as the retail medicines which, which was what cms projects out they are saying that this is going to be a steady share all the way through 2000 and you know for the next decade Now the apartment institute which is a health economics firm that looked at the non-retail or the hospital spending they're seeing again fairly consistent, along with that is around fourteen additional four percent for non-retail spending. So a total of about fourteen percent of healthcare spending through the next decade across all payers. And that's largely because you have this cycle, and no other no other area of healthcare has this um, life cycle, which has built-in cost containment. But when products go off patent, generics come on the market. You know, ninety percent of the prescriptions that are dispensed in the United States are generic. Um, and those generics would never be in existence if, there hadn't, if they had not once been branded products for those uh, for those for those medicines that are there. So they have they have medicines. They come online. They, they after they lose patent expiry, they the, the price drops dramatically. But even well before that, just within two years of a branded product launch, there's going to be brand versus brand competition that's on the market, which that that competition results in greater rebates the payers negotiate with, with manufacturers, who negotiate with manufacturers, which brings down overall spending. Sure. And that's, that to me is important. And I think I talked to you about that uh, Berkeley Research Group study. So that 14% that, we, that I talked about, that incorporates how much is spent on branded medicines, how much is spent on generic medicines, and how much is taken by the supply chain. But if you only look at how much is kept by the branded manufacturers, where almost all the debate is, is we're on brand drug spending, well, branded manufacturers are only are keeping in two thousand fifteen. What the Berkeley Research Group study showed was that branded manufacturers kept about seven percent. It's a little bit less than half of the total spent on on, on those three buckets. Seven percent of total healthcare spending. So people don't know that. So that what the amount that branded manufacturers kept they said was about two hundred eighteen point six billion dollars, which is a lot of money. You know, that's that's how much branded companies uh, retained. From uh, from their products. That's that's all brand products. that's dispensed through retail pharmacies and the ones dispensed through hospitals and physician offices. Two hundred eighteen point six billion dollars. That's a lot of money. Until you consider that the United States spent more than three point two trillion dollars on overall healthcare spending in 2015 alone. So that two hundred eighteen point six billion is about seven percent of the overall three point two. A little bit higher, a little bit over $3.2 trillion um, spent on health care spending in the U.S. And for that 7%, we've gotten cures for things like hepatitis C, as we, as we discussed. And over the past, um, you know, um, since, since the since the, its peak, you've seen cancer death rates in the United States drop by 23%. Now that two out of three patients diagnosed with cancer are living at least five years following diagnosis, which is a very big deal, especially if you're your loved one's Have cancer, Um, also in part to those new innovative medicines. You're talking between, which is a fact, between 1991 and 2011, the death rate from heart disease has dropped by 46 percent in the United States. You know, and so when you have medicines like this, like the statin class, whole class of medicines that are statins, they came on the market. They helped. They 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 came out. They were branded medicines. Now they're all almost all generic medicines. Just for cardiovascular disease. and. They have now. They're all become. They've, they've become generics, and people have. this whole the classes of medical procedures that are just no longer needed any longer because these medicines have basically removed their need, the need for, this, for, for those um, for those types of procedures.
0: Sure. Well. Uh, well. When, when you look uh, when you look at uh, uh, the Medicaid data in this state, which we did in our recent report. Uh, hospitalization is still more than half uh, of the cost uh, that is accrued to the Medicaid program here so anything that will reduce that large number is going to be significant.
1: Well keep in mind there's no generic hospitals there are no generic physicians so those costs have continued to rise. Costs for medical procedures have continued to rise. Hospital uh, hospital costs have continued to rise. and so they with the, some of the statements are like, oh, but the rate of increase is, is lower than, than it is for drugs. But, the, but you're talking about a much smaller base for prescription drugs, and if you look at the latest data that just came out this week, I mean, from CMS, showed that uh, prescription drug spending um, in 2016 rose by 5%, as opposed mm-hmm. to 2015. That, that was put out by the federal government, and multiple other sources have basically said that net spending, after this is after rebates and discounts have been removed, but net spending, CVS Caremark has reported this, um, Express Scripts have reported this, um, the Altarum Institute has reported it, and as as have um, IMS that the that the spending increase, the trend for prescription medicine spending after rebasing discounts were removed, um, is between two and five percent. The range is between two and five percent for these various sources in 2016 as compared to 2015. So you're not seeing a great trend of further increase in spending. Well, we, you talked about you know the hospital spending is high, but how does how do medicines help that? In addition to that, well, we I don't have I didn't have data on how specifically the new medicines would dramatically decrease um, hospitalizations as such because I don't have I, I wish I had that, but I don't I don't have that information. But what I do have is when you look at um, the the kinds of med- kinds of diseases which account for the majority of healthcare spending, it's not these exotic diseases; it's chronic diseases. It's stuff like diabetes. It's like congestive heart failure, hypertension, dyslipidemia. These types of like more chronic disease is what's where we spend most of our money um, on healthcare spending in the, in the United States. And what what they, we have studies that have shown that if patients were actually adherent to their course of therapy, if they took their medicines the way their the way their doctor wanted them to take their medicines, that the savings on the medical side from them taking their medicines was about is about. 213 billion dollars per year
0: well now wait a minute I, I, hang on i want you to repeat that you're saying that people just take their medicines as they uh have been instructed by their physician uh anyway go, go ahead but that's a big number i just want to make sure that that's we're clear about that
1: yeah I, I can provide you a citation it's just a real book study but they they have done a deep analysis on on this People don't take their medicine. The doctor prescribes their drugs. They don't even take. Sometimes people take them. Sometimes they don't take them along the way. Now, what I'm saying is when they take their medicines, they don't have to be branded medicines. These can be generics, too. Just folks generally, a lot of folks are not adherent. So if they actually took the medicines that their physician prescribed, and they took them the way their physician asked them to take them, the savings to the system is about two hundred and thirteen billion dollars annually in what we call medical cost offsets.
0: And, and who did that study? Uh, so I won't excuse me. I, um, I, just, I Yeah,
1: to... I, I have let me pull it up right now. I can I can give you the exact citation. Um, the um, researcher named Brobuck. Has the study is called "Medication Adherence Leads to Lower Healthcare Use and Costs Despite Increased Drug Spending." There's an article that appeared in Health Affairs uh, was back in two thousand
0: eleven.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, uh and i can I can send you the I can send you that uh,
0: no 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 that that's fine but uh th- that's pretty interesting
1: no it, it is it is true so, it, so you're looking at so I'm saying is that you're getting a lot for the for the seven percent of overall healthcare spending for these branded for, for that brand companies are retaining already, and we are working on ways to try to you know do different contracting levels along the way to try to bring to bring um that type of spending you know, down even further by using more value-based contracting or more innovative, innovative uh, approaches. Sure. But one more thing, that, the last thing I want to just bring up is that people talk a lot about drug prices. Because what you see in the marketplace are the list prices. And we talked a little bit about, you know, this is like the list price is sort of like a sticker price on a car, it's like the beginning point of negotiations. And then, then, uh, drug companies, um, or, you know, uh, pharmaceutical manufacturers, they, they negotiate with insurers to get down to a net price. They have a system of rebates and discounts that are paid. Well, IMS, which is probably the largest uh, data consulting firm in the United States, it is is the largest data consulting firm in the United States, has been tracking this. And in their um, use of medicines report that they published in April of 2016, they published a very interesting chart. It tracks what they call invoice spending, which is the invoice price, which is a, a price which is very close to the list price. It's invoice prices represent how much pharmacies purchase medicines for from the wholesaler. So most of the discounts and rebates are given on the on the unbranded um, products. Um, after not is not included in that. So the invoice prices of prices very close to the list price. And then they tracked how much is the net price. So the price after all rebates and discounts and things that brand companies give are have been removed across all payers in the United States. And in 2015, what they saw was that the invoice price, again, the price is close to the list, which is what what is publicized in the in the in the media, rose by twelve point four percent. So that's a goal, it's a double digit rise in drug prices. But the interesting thing about this chart is when when you take out all of the rebates and discounts that manufacturers pay, that goes to that all the supply chain entities that we discussed and to health plans. The net price, after all those rebates and discounts were taken out, rose by two point eight percent. Wow. So the twelve point four is talked about a lot because that's the public price in the media. The two point two point eight isn't discussed much at all, and it's just what you know the point of, kind of I was making. And if we have this entire supply chain and distribution system in this country, and there's a lot of rebates that are paid. There's a lot of discounts that are given, and everybody takes a cut of that, and everybody gets a share of that within that particular supply chain. And so, what what is gets reported in the media when, they, when people talk about prescription drug spending, they talk about brand, generic, and distribution costs, and they blame the brand companies for all of that. But that's not, the, you know, brand companies are retaining a share of that; they're not retaining all of that. And when they talk about prices, they don't they don't rack out the rebates and discounts, which is not what the what the manufacturer is actually getting. So that's what the point I made about when I when I saw um, Senator Sanders' appearance on the Bill Maher show. It's like that difference. You know, the list price goes up, but the net price does not go up by much at all. The difference between those two prices are the rebates, discounts, and uh, that are given to the supply chain and to health plans. And so the manufacturer got the net price. Manufacturer did not get the list price.
0: I don't know. know. It's fascinating. That's somewhat clear. Yeah, no, sure. Yeah. Well, it's important to uh, uh, to get this perspective and to get this these added uh, uh, points of information, uh, because we're generally uh, as far as uh, general news consumption, we're not getting that point of view and we're not getting that further explanation. Salma, we really appreciate your time. And uh, this has been very informative. Uh, my name is Lou Moore with the Washington Research Council. My guest today has been the Senior Policy Director of Pharma, Samuel Panya, and we also thank you for joining us.